Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I think it's pretty clear you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I think that guests want this. Hundreds of millions of guests have voted and said they've wanted this. I think millions of hosts want this, and those hosts are local voters. So last week, I decided to cycle up a very, very steep hill in San Francisco because at the top, there's a huge Masonic concert hall, uh, which usually hosts music acts. Tom Jones, for example, is playing there in a couple months. But last week, I went there along with the rest of the world's tech press to hear a speech from Brian Chesky one of the three founders of Airbnb, which, as you surely know, is one of the most amazing startup success stories in recent memory, or really, ever. So here's a very quick version of the Airbnb story. They received their first check from an outside investor back in 2008, and it was for $20,000. That's it. Today, the company is worth $31 billion, and it's the largest hotel company in the world, but doesn't own a single building. Quite a trick. And on Thursday, Airbnb celebrated its 10th anniversary, hence the big shindig at the concert hall. And the purpose was for Chesky to lay out his grand plan for the next 10 years and beyond. Uh, now I'm guessing very few, if any, got to attend. But fear not. Because a couple weeks before the announcement, Airbnb invited me over to their HQ for a sneaky little chat with Chesky about his big reveal, which we've had to keep under wraps until now. So you get that news, but we talk about loads of other and frankly much more interesting stuff. And just so you know, you can't get this anywhere else. We're the only podcast he spoke to in Britain and I think perhaps in all of Europe. So I hope you enjoy it. We cover a lot of ground from how Chesky is grappling with regulatory crackdowns all over the world to why tree houses are the most profitable properties, but you didn't know that. And what the next decade will look like for Airbnb if Chesky gets his way. I think some of it will surprise you. Anyhow, that's enough from me. Without further ado, here's Brian. Thank you for allowing me into your building. Thank you for coming into our building. Sir. Well, because last time I was here, I tried to come in and there was a whole issue around and I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I was like, I'm a journalist. I can't do that. And then I ended up having to kind of stay on the ground floor. Oh, really? Yeah. So what happened this time? 
I, 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 yeah, we, we kind of snuck, we, said, we snuck in. Just get in. All right, all right, just sneak in. All right, good. good. But there's news. You have news. I'll set it up by saying this. Airbnb is about 10 years old. And 10 years ago, we had this crazy idea. I like to call it our unlikely mission because everyone that I talked to seemed to have thought we were crazy. They said strangers will never stay with other strangers. A couple hundred million people later, it's clear that- It's been a couple hundred million. Yeah, wow. people. It's been very clear that this is this slightly crazy alternative idea is becoming more mainstream. And so we're thinking a lot more about what the next 10 years of Airbnb looks like. 10 years ago, we started this idea of Airbnb homes. Today, we're really launching the most significant reimagining of our homes business since we started. And the idea is that we're going to provide a magical stay for every type of traveler. We no longer want it to be just an alternative. And so that means we're introducing a number of concepts. We're going to introduce categorization. We're going to be able to categorize the homes so you can find the perfect home just for you by highlighting what's unique about every host. We're launching collections like a business collection, a family collection, a honeymoon collection for special types of use cases. We're also launching Airbnb Plus, a new standard of quality where we do a 100-point inspection on every home to verify it for quality and comfort. And we're also going to be previewing an Airbnb luxury service, end-to-end trips, homes, experiences, services with a trip designer that's like a concierge, all in one place. To top it all off, we're going to be doing more recognition for our community by providing many more benefits for people who've been loyal to our, our community. I think if we do all of this, it should help us go from the first few hundred million people to one day maybe a billion guests being in our community because the whole idea is that everyone should be able to participate and there should be something for everyone. And I think this really should set the next standard. Why are you doing this? I mean, is it a recognition of the fact that you guys have become so big it's a bit bewildering when you go yeah, in? You know, Airbnb was designed for 10 years ago when we were small. It was essentially, think of Airbnb as it was designed for thousands of people and it's now millions of people. And so we want to set the next design that could accommodate the kind of growth that we're experiencing. It kind of reminds me of EasyJet back in the early days. Was yep. this thing like, yeah, that's kind of an interesting yes. option, interesting budget option for some people. Yep. But now it's kind of heavily used by business travelers. It's kind of grown up. When we first launched Airbnb, we had a tagline, and it was a cheap, affordable alternative to a hotel. The idea being, if you can't afford to stay in a hotel, this is an alternative. Now, that was kind of its original intention. Over 10 years, it's become very clear that saving money is one of the great reasons you use Airbnb, but there's other reasons. And in fact, the number one pre- reason people use Airbnb is they want to live in a local community. They want to live like a local. They want to have a local connection to the community, the neighborhood. They want to stay in a home. We have to acknowledge that like, the company has outgrown you know, its first weekend you know, when it was just a way for a lot of budget travelers to save money, that we are moving more into business travel, we're moving more into family travel, into special occasion travel, whether it's dinner parties or honeymoons or weddings, for different people of different tiers and price points, like Airbnb Plus or the Lux service. Um, people that don't even want to stay in a home, but they want to stay in something unique, like they want to stay in a treehouse. We have many treehouses that are very hard to find right now. You kind of discover them. And uh, we have a Are you going to have a treehouse category? We're going to have a treehouse category, a boat category, a yurt category. A yurt category? A, a category of yurts. Do you know how many yurts you have? We know that number. I don't know if I don't have that number off the top of my head, but I think we have more than a thousand of each of those different categories: tree houses, boats, and yurts. I mean, who would have thought? Like, I didn't I know there was the a thousand tree ho- livable tree houses in the world. Apparently, there are, and we're discovering new ones every day. And it's amazing, <laughs> you know. By the way, the funny thing is, tree houses are some of the 
most profitable homes per square footage. So if you, really? <laughs> you want to host, the property value of a treehouse is low. You just need a, a tree. But the perceived value is a huge it's, – it's huge. It's a very unique experience. That's interesting because we're looking at buying a house with a yard. And we're trying to figure out and make the numbers work. So look maybe for a nice tree. It's yeah, all about the tree. We need a good foundation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You just mentioned you're talking about community. And I think well, that's one of the interesting things that is happening right now is that there seems to be more and more pushback against Airbnb. People saying that this is breaking communities apart. We just stayed in Airbnb. And I'm not going to do like anecdote journalism. But it, this seems to reflect a, a larger move that we went to the neighborhood and every front lawn had a sign that said neighborhoods are for neighbors not vacation rentals there does seem to be a real pushback around creating hotels or businesses within communities and that changing the nature of the community we have a very important principle which is that we want to serve and strengthen the local communities i think we've generally been able to do that the vast majority of people who host host the home they live in when people search airbnb they sometimes see these empty homes these entire homes i would say that we believe it's hard to know for sure that the vast majority of those homes are people who live in the community who rent the homes are not there that being said we acknowledge that there are times in these cities where people are taking housing off the market. We do not want that to happen. We're against that. We want to continue to do a better job of policing that. It is absolutely not our intention to break communities apart. In fact, it's our intention to strengthen the communities by allowing people to be able to stay in their home, rent the extra space they have, allow people to participate in the daily life of locals and contribute. Part of what we're trying to do is really lean into our roots, really celebrate why we started in the first place. So this is something that we're dealing with as far as, you know, Airbnb was designed to be a much smaller company. And the roots of Airbnb, we take a bigger responsibility today than we started. When we started Airbnb, Craigslist and eBay were like the big stand standards. I mean, Craigslist. Pure Midiar and Craig Newmark, they kind of had a couple core beliefs. They believed people were fundamentally good. They believed that the community was an immune system. And it was a very kind of hands-off approach that the algorithms and the technology and the community would moderate itself and the system would work. I still believe some of that. I still believe people are fundamentally good. At hundreds of millions of people later, what I've learned is that people are 99% the same as much as we say how different we are and how the media and digital bubbles and tribalism seems to divide us. We're actually much more similar deep down. That's a very comforting thought. But the other thing we've learned is there's negative externalities to your design. That like when I was an industrial designer growing up, I made products and people said, well, is this product good for the environment? That was not a consideration when industrial design 70 years ago. I think today, all of us that manage platforms or communities that are large have to think about the ramifications of our consequence of our community into the larger context of the world. Are we good for neighborhoods? Are we good for cities? Are we good for the world at large? And if we're not, we should not be doing things. And so this nature of strengthening communities is a very important consideration. Because so how, many, how many cities are you in now? 60,000. One of the principles we made is we will treat every city personally. And we have a pretty robust team going to different markets trying to figure out what works for all constituents, right? For the hosts renting their mm -hmm. homes, the neighbors, the city. And this is going to be a journey that we're on. Is there something you can do, practically speaking? If you're in 60,000 cities, you have millions of people using your service and you're growing, how do you continue to grow and prosper, but also balance this idea that like, if I'm living in a neighborhood, I don't want effectively a hotel next door. There's many ways to grow. 
the first thing I would say is this. We have instituted many policies in different cities. We have a one host per home policy in New York City. In numerous cities, including here in San Francisco and other cities, we comply with laws. They have a registration system. They may have a cap on nights. These are all proxies yeah. to presume somebody lives in that neighborhood. Yeah, because so San Francisco were, just passed their new – or those new registration rules. Regi- just it, it went into yeah. – we removed everyone that wasn't registered. And so we presume, therefore, those people live in those communities. It's hard to establish primary residence. The Knights is a proxy for that. There's many ways for us to grow. We can grow by moving up market. We can grow by going into all the small towns. We have experiences. We have some of the biggest economies in the world, like China. So there is so much room for us. We are less than 1% penetration of the global travel industry. We are a fraction of percent. 1%. Less than 1%. The travel industry, it's hard to nail down exactly how big it is. It is and that 1% worst. is at hotels or is that travel broadly? Well, Less than 1% of travel broadly. And the accommodation market's like seven, $800 billion, right. close to a trillion dollars. The travel industry is almost 10% of global GDP, depending on, or between half, 5 and 10%, depending on how you size it. This is one of the biggest industries in the world. Ultimately, I think there's a, two or three really big trends that are happening that we are part of. The first trend is people more and more today want to have experiences rather than have things. So if you think about when I was growing up, I wanted to physically own things. I wanted the cool new shoes, the the new Game Boy or whatever. And I think that kids and many young people today will value experiences. And I think an entire experience economy will emerge. And I think that travel is one of the ultimate experiences. If you think about your life moments, the biggest moments in your life, many of them involve travel. You're, you get married. What's the thing you do right after you get married? You retire. What's the thing you do after you retire? Travel is one of the ultimate aspirations, and we think that travel will be a huge growth engine and a huge part of how we experience the world in the future. The problem with travel is often travelers do things locals would never do. They don't belong in the community, so we want to make sure they belong. So the first trend is that. The second trend is that I think there's going to be more and more automation. I think it's pretty easy to imagine all the jobs today that automation, artificial intelligence will probably replace. I don't know how many there will be, but it's easier to imagine what will replace them, what will create. I think that there is a huge economic opportunity for people in the next decade or two. And one of those areas is around entrepreneurship. And one way we would like to contribute is by creating millions of new host entrepreneurs. So we'd love to create this world where you go to local communities, there's many there are thousands in these local communities of host entrepreneurs. They're hopefully strengthening the community, not taking extractions from the community. So that's something we want to partner with cities to make sure is happening. And they are creating these communities where any traveler can go to any new neighborhood and kind of become anything you want via that way of traveling. In, in other words, say I'm factory worker X, I'm put out of a job by a robot, but I still have my home. I can rent that out and kind of... And maybe you love fill-in-the-blank passion. And you can share that passion, that experience, that hobby with other people. Because I'm a wine lover and I can be like, you can, come you stay can my place. Wine. You have an authority and stay right. at my place, but I can also take in a tour. We can, I can teach you how to do this thing. Or if I worked at a factory, I have a skill. I can teach that skill to people who want to learn that when they travel. Nobody really knows how big the market for experiences is, but I think it could be massive. Do you ever walk around here and just think, this is totally bizarre? It wasn't that long ago that you were actually had the air mattresses in your apartment, right? I mean, I grew up in Albany, New York. My mom was a social worker, and so she didn't make a lot of money. And she said, I chose a job for the love. I didn't make a lot of money, so please choose a job that pays you very well. And I said, sure, I'm going to become an artist. And she said, you somehow managed the one job that might get paid less than a social worker. And she said, so if you're going to go to art school, promise me you'll get a job with health insurance. So that was like the frame of reference that I had going to college. Graduating college, it was kind of crazy because you, I came out here 10 years ago, not even 10 years ago. I mean, 
as recent as 2010, we were still working out of a three-bedroom apartment. You could fit our entire apartment in this section of the office. Yeah. I remember at one point thinking, we're a huge company. We had 10 employees. It just seemed like, well, it's 10 times bigger than the amount of employees I had before. Like, it's just this huge community. And How humbling, many employees are there now? Close to 5,000 globally. We have a couple thousand here in San Francisco. And it's a huge amount of responsibility. It's humbling. It kind of makes you grow up fast. I'm 36, and I, I guess you grow up, I presume, based on your responsibilities. People, they have, I don't have kids, but people with kids, they tend to grow up. Well, when you have this amount of responsibility, it also does that. And it really matures you very quickly because you realize thousands of people's jobs rely on you, millions of hosts, hundreds of millions of guests, communities, and safety. Not just that, but like we also feel like we have a huge responsibility to like be a positive example for other tech companies the travel industry. So yeah, it's a, I, I guess the answer would be it's a lot of responsibility and it's humbling. And Y Combinator was the first investor. Yeah, they were the first investor. They invested $20,000 when that seemed like maybe a crazy amount and, of money to invest. 2009. January 2009. We were trying to raise money for like more than a year. And we were trying to raise like $100,000. And I remember we got inv- introductions to like more than a dozen investors, just about all of them passed. So we didn't know what we were going to do. We were totally broke. You know, those, those there's these binders that I, when I was a kid, kids with baseball cards in these plastic yeah, yeah. sleeves. I have, I have a bunch of those in my room. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, we had those two and we put credit cards in them. We couldn't afford to pay rent. And Y Combinator was the first ones and they believed in us. And even they, Paul Graham, who ran Y Combinator, admitted this was a crazy idea. And was there a moment when you realized this might actually work? Every step of the way, we saw the next step. The first weekend, we host these three people for this design conference, and I didn't know anyone would stay with us. And Joe and I hosted these three people, a 35-year-old woman from Boston, a 30-year-old from India, a 45-year-old father from Utah. And after that weekend, we had such a good time. We made enough money to pay our rent. We thought, you know, one day this could work. This could be massive. And thousands of people were going to rent their air mattresses for conferences. That's our vision. That was the actual vision? That was the first one. (laughs) And then we kind of quickly thought maybe that's a little small. And then eventually people rented their whole bedrooms, not just their – I mean somebody wanted to rent a a bedroom one day, and I'm like, great, just get an air mattress, inflate it, and put it on your mattress. And that made no sense. So we were like, let's ditch the air bed, and let's expand beyond air beds to do bedrooms. But then somebody said, I want to go to London, but there's no conference. And we're like, well, why does that have to be a conference? The conference was meant to be like, well, you can trust the person. They're both going to conference. But we was like, well, if we had profiles and reviews, maybe you don't need to have a conference. So then it was bedrooms all over the country or all over the world. That seems like a kind of big idea. And then pretty soon people started renting their whole homes. And we weren't sure who should allow it because we were called air bed and breakfast. And if we're called air bed and breakfast, you rent your whole home, how are you going to make breakfast for them? And so this was a big moral dilemma. Do we get rid of the breakfast? Or you have to rebrand. Or we rebrand. <laughs> and we rebranded Airbnb. <laughs> Which, um, but we thought, okay, we'll allow people to rent their entire homes. And then people want to rent their vacation rentals. They wanted to rent their tree houses, their boats, all these different types of spaces. It was mostly U.S. and Europe. And then suddenly people from all over Asia and South America and Africa started using it. It became this global network. For our category, we're the largest company in China, Cuba, and United States. It's what very category is that? Home sharing. But typically, like, concepts get copied and it's in China, and it's very hard to succeed in Cuba. But we have success in Japan, India, all these different countries. The reason why is at the end of the day, it's a global travel community. And that's probably what's made it so successful. And the last thing I'll say is, as we were growing homes, we started realizing we can apply this model to other things. Like, in other words, if two people trust one another, and you could see a profile identity, 
what if they could rent things other than their home? And we ask ourselves, well, what's the biggest asset you have? Most people say it's their home. Actually, it's probably your time. So how could you monetize people's time? And we looked at different things, and we ended up with experiences. And we thought, you know, there's cooking classes, there's concerts in people's homes, there's walking tours, there's sports, there's nightlife, there's all different passions. Many of these passions people do for free, and they want to be able to pursue. What if you can get paid to do your passion? You keep saying, well, what else could you do with this? If you unlock trust between two people, what else could happen? And that's kind of how it kept growing. So we always saw like one or two steps ahead. Right. But I think the thing that always was at the core was just allowing you to like belong in the community. That was it. These three designers, so one weekend, they came as outsiders and they left as like as if they were other designers in San Francisco. That was that first weekend. Right. And we believed that this would be an idea that would spread around the world. And so now the kind of you're basically the biggest hotel company that, that doesn't run a hotel. But you guys are actually getting into buildings, is that right? We are partnering with landlords. A lot of landlords have reached out to us. In fact, many landlords had reached out to us previously because they didn't want us in their buildings. We would partner with them, educate them. As we discussed with landlords, they learned about the economics, and they learned that there's a number of benefits to allowing your B&B in your building. Number one, people are more likely to be able to pay their rent on time. You can open to a greater pool of people. And we even developed a revenue split with some landlords. And then suddenly people started saying, going from, I don't know if I want this in my building, to this feels like where the world's going. Space will be you know, shared a little more freely, and we should design our buildings differently. So are you doing an Amazon where you like basically Amazon destroys the book market <laughs> and then starts opening bookstores? Um, I don't... I, <laughs> So going back to the global market share thing, I, I, don't, yeah. I think I read recently, Amazon's got much more than 50% market share of books. I don't know. I can't remember what their market right. share is. I think I read it yesterday, but it was like significantly more than 50%. And again, we're like 1%. So we are nowhere near that market share penetration. The one thing I will say about Amazon is of all the big tech companies, the way they've approached their business and building their business to be kind of like a one-stop shop for shopping for goods is probably most similar to what we're trying to do with travel, to be a one-stop shop. To an airline. Who knows? Air, Airbnb. Airbnb or B&B Air. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something you're seriously considering? We've seriously considered a lot of things around aviation. We've spent a lot of time um, exploring different concepts. You know, we don't, certainly don't have anything to announce. That's not part of our announcement. Yeah. We definitely want to make sure, though, that we can get into the end-to-end trip. The challenge is just figuring out what you can do in a way that's differentiated. And, you know, yeah. what, what, what is unique? That you can do. And, and aviation has a long history of, my dad used to be a pilot for United. Yep. So he was there when they went through bankruptcy. Oh, yeah. I think it was the longest bankruptcy in history. But United is one of virtually every airline that went bankrupt at some point. A prediction I'll make is, I think the car industry, for example, is going through a revolution with shift from combustion to EV, electronic vehicle, and also self-driving cars. And cars essentially becoming large devices, like software devices. You're like inside of a, I guess, a giant smartphone that you can, it can be voice command with a giant touch screens and it's can basically control itself. So the car industry is going through a massive change. I think you're going to see a very similar transformation over the coming decades in aviation. And this might be a much longer game, but I think you're going to see that. And so who knows what it's going to look like, but I think you're going to see a, a revolution in flying. Yeah. And so if somebody has a child today, that child's going to grow up in a very different world for aviation than the one we live in today. And certainly driving. A drive completely. Like we yeah. already, I think that one's already happening. Yeah. And so because I, I have a one-year-old, I'm like, I wonder if he's going to need a driver's license. I don't think so. I, I somebody said once that in the future, 
driving a car would be like riding a horse. Like there was a day when everyone rode horses to get around or that was the yeah. ostensible way you would do it. And now people still ride horses, but you do it for fun. It's you have not... to go to a ranch and get trained. Yeah. And then you go around a trail and it's like, ooh, that was a fun adventure. I think, I mean, we're talking many decades from yeah. now. If somebody is interested in driving, it will probably be considered slightly dangerous and will say like, okay, you need to get trained and um, it will be like riding a horse. Right. And yeah, and I think we'll probably be much more automated. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm interested in this idea of kind of the end of the algorithm. If you look at what Facebook is doing, they've realized like, oh, we need to hire 10,000 people. What we have created, this platform is so big, we actually need human input to control, as you, as you put it, the negative externalities. YouTube has said we're, that we're going to hire thousands of people to police YouTube because there's so much on there and there's so many negative effects yeah. that we didn't foresee and that like the algorithm isn't smart enough to yeah. detect. And to your point around communities and trying to be positive is it fair to say there's something similar going on and how you guys are trying to manage your growth as you get bigger and go around the world? Yeah, I mean, listen, like I think that like a lot of the big tech companies are having this kind of really interesting moment in time, this existential kind of consideration of what's happening with their platforms. I would say that we've been on this journey for a number of years. It's been a more gradual process where we've had to have many more partnerships with cities much earlier. So I think we've been on this path and doesn't mean our work is at all over. I think all of us in tech are taking more and more responsibility for what happens in our community and are therefore intervening more. When you do that, I think algorithms are really, really amazing at optimizing for only a couple effects or a couple metrics. But I think when you have to balance many stakeholders and many constituents, like if we just want to grow as fast as possible, and just optimize one metric, an algorithm is incredibly efficient, typically more efficient than a person. But when we want to have a lot of subjective criteria and say, is this growing good, but do I like it? How does the community going to feel about it? What about these stakeholders? Do I have a diverse community? It becomes a very, very complex. I don't think algorithms are ending. And in fact, I think there'll be significantly more algorithms that are much more sophisticated in the future. But you're going to see a lot more human intervention as there's a lot Which more that, responsibility. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean is the uh, end no, of the algorithm as like this almost religious Like, um, like the algorithm will yeah. take care of itself. Yeah. I think you're going to see a lot more human intervention. I think the human intervention 
will also get more automated to newer algorithms. I think the shift is more about hands-on responsibility, actively managing the platform that you run. And so we've even talked about our own marketplace in these shifts we're making, a little more hands-on. It's much easier to take responsibility for what happens on our platform when hosts apply and we accept or decline who's in our community. Hosts have to apply. And we've been very, very thoughtful about approving hosts. When we approve hosts, we make sure that like, they're not doing something dangerous. If they are, they have a license for it. We try to have cultural sensitivities when we approve experiences. We try to make sure the communities are diverse. When anyone can list anything, you are essentially saying this is a more hands-off model. It is harder to take responsibility because you're like, that was a terrible host. Well, we didn't screen them. They just clicked a button. They listed. Right. And so the more we manage and the more intervention there is, the more responsible we can take. It's a fine line because we still want to be community powered. Like at some point, if you control completely, you're a hotel. It's finding that balance where the community still is in control, but you have better guardrails, better community moderation, better standards. And I think we're all finding this balance. But I think you're going to see a lot of platforms get more and more actively hands-on and, hand, uh, and more managed. We're going to have people show up and do 100-point inspections in homes. If you told me seven years ago we would send a person to inspect a person's home, I would have said we'd never have done it. I'd say, principally, we are a platform that's open. People should list whatever they want. And the community should decide if it's good or bad, not Airbnb. That's what I thought. Community should decide if it's good or bad. I think we're now realizing there's limitations to that. That like there is some pre-screening that could be happening. There um, is basic vetting that people would appreciate. And they put a lot of trust in a brand. I think just all of us taking more responsibility is a good thing. And yeah, one of the um, – on these uh, on these kind of new changes that are that you guys are putting in place, one of them is – I think there's six categories yep. that will be on the site. Yep. And one of them Macro is – Macro categories. And then yeah, you can filter below right. the tree. Um, dedicated rentals is yep. one. How, mu- how much – of the, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but like of the four million plus, nobody knows. I mean, we don't categorize it. We don't. We haven't right. asked hosts, so we can only speculate how many rentals are dedicated rentals. But until we are more explicit about asking the host, the better. The first thing is to ask. Now, you presume the majority of people will be truthful, but starting with asking is important because we want to set really good expectations. For example, there are people who want to stay in a dedicated rental. They want to go to Tahoe or they want to go somewhere and they want not people stuff in their environment, but other people will be really let down. They want to have a cultural experience. They want to stay with someone else and they want to feel like what that culture, that person lives like. They don't want it to be, you know, absent of somebody living there. The more important thing is that we're honest and open about expectations about who everyone is on our platform. I think the heart and soul of Airbnb is continuing to be homes that people rent when they live there. That is still, we believe, the vast majority. will probably always be the vast majority. But it doesn't mean we're against dedicated rentals. We're very much for them as long as they're not taking away from the character of the community. But we don't want them to be mixed up where you can't tell the difference and then you're let down when you show up. We're now in 2018. Is this the year you guys go public? This is, no. We, um, we have nothing to announce right now. Don't hold your breath. Do you want to be a public company CEO? It just seems like such a pain in the ass answering to analysts and reporters and earnings and all that kind of stuff it's not something i worry too much about i mean listen like what i've said many times is that we will be a public company when it's in the best interest of all of our stakeholders and shareholders the vast majority of our shareholders for now are incredibly happy with how things are going they're not rushing for us to go public there is a project to be able to make sure you have real-time financials predictable revenue there's a lot of things you want to make sure that you can do 
I think that for us, I have not all the responsibility, but a lot of the responsibility of a public company CEO as it is. I mean, many of our financials find their way out there publicly. We have raised billions of dollars of capital. So I do have accountability to shareholders, including public uh, mutual funds that are the same people that would invest in public companies. Um, we're pretty high profile. You know, we have earnings calls every quarter with our private investors. So we run the company not completely dissimilar. Obviously, there's additional responsibilities when you're public. And I saw the run rate, the last thing I saw, I think it was in November, it said you guys are bringing in about now about a billion dollars in revenue a quarter. So if we were public, I'd probably talk about that every quarter publicly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the difference between a private yeah. company. I guess like what else is there about being private than not publicly talking about those things? But the growth has been pretty amazing. Bas- just about every year, we continue to outperform what we thought we were going to do. Every so often, I get surprised in a bad way, not usually on financials and other things. For example, two years ago, I was surprised in a very bad way when I realized the extent of discrimination that was happening on our platform. And then we had to, that was a major transformation. It's one of the more proud things I'm a part of that I, I did, even though I'm not proud of how we got there. Other than that, I'm usually very surprised in a good way about the platform. And I think it's because this idea started, it seemed like as a niche, it's like a small, crazy idea. At its heart, people love homes. People don't trust strangers per se, but they might trust this person when they found what school they went to and they have a common language with them. I think the underlying ideas are very big. It's not surprising that we keep surprising ourselves with this potential, this idea. I think people want to be able to live together. They want to be able to discover their cultures. This is not something that I think an alternative or niche group wants to do. You talked about the discrimination issue. What was your worst day of work? My worst day at Airbnb was a day in July 2011. A year before, we were working out of our three-bedroom apartment. We had just raised this large round of funding that valued the company at more than a billion dollars, which is very easy to convince yourself you're like super successful. We had a lot of attention. Suddenly, we went from being not on the radar to being like the next big thing in tech. And, and then all of a sudden, a woman's apartment got trashed. And it was the first time that we had like a major incident on the platform. And I think many people were holding their breath, waiting for something to happen. And of course, something eventually happened. And we were very ill-prepared for this. Um, we didn't have the kind of protections we have now, like a, like a guarantee against uh, theft and property damage. We weren't prepared for, for the customer support. I got to experience an early form of internet outrage. It just became like escalated, escalated, escalated for like three to five days. And it felt like every day there were new stories coming out about this woman or other people. And it just kind of kept piling on and we couldn't figure out how to escape it. We didn't know what to do. We felt incredibly sorry, but didn't know what to do. And people seemed really angry. They felt like we didn't do enough to protect this woman. And we realized like this is a wake up call. A bit of the culture of the company changed in that moment. I like to say that that was the moment I went from being a founder to a CEO because I had to really step up and do some things that at the time were unpopular. I had to take a lot of responsibility for what had happened. And before that, we didn't take as much responsibility. That was the beginning of taking responsibility. I wrote an open letter. I apologized to this woman whose apartment was trash. I said, we screwed up. And I was very, I very much leaned in. I don't remember the time CEOs apologizing so openly. I think now it's kind of rather common, unfortunately, <laughs> and increasingly common because increasingly it was counterintuitive for a CEO to do. Yeah. In other words, it was not conventional wisdom that you should do this. You're opening yourself up to liability, all these types of things. And we also did things that at the time seemed crazy. Now they don't seem so crazy. Like we, what? Well, the, the craziest thing we did was we were going to offer this thing called the Airbnb guarantee, where we're going to guarantee you against any property damage, and we're going to guarantee $5,000 
per home. I think we had, I'm going to make this number of like 100,000 or so homes back then. So $5,000 times 100,000, you get the sense, $500 million. So it's more money than we raised. One day, one of our investors, Mark Andreessen, comes in. He read a draft of my open letter saying, I'm sorry, here's what we're doing to make it better. We're instituting this $5,000 guarantee. He takes the 5000 he adds a zero at the end, 50000 Seemed borderline reckless, at least financially. But of course, it seemed like probably the right thing to do if we could afford it, but we didn't know if we could afford it. And we decided, well, I, I was comforted that the guy who had just written me a check was the one that added the zero. So I'm like, well, you're in this with me because <laughs> it's your idea, but let's go for it. It's part of this culture of like adding a zero, going further than anyone expected. That fifty thousand dollar guarantee of theft and property damage is now a million dollar guarantee, and it's we, a million bucks now. Now it's a million dollars, and and we're always doing new things. But that was an example. Now it maybe doesn't sound like a big deal, but at the time, a lot of people were really freaked out about that, and it just it seemed like a more conservative measure was the right path to go. But I think in life, you like if you really want to make an impact, you'll have to be bold and compassionate. And that was an example. We were going to be try to be really compassionate, but also have courage to do something. And sometimes it doesn't work out, but you will ultimately, I think, be rewarded if you follow those principles. Yeah. And you signed up to the giving pledge. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, Nate, and I, all three of us did. All three of you did? Yeah. That's interesting. Because, I mean, most of the people that I think about when that giving pledge is like, in the giving pledge is I'm going to basically give away, is it all or most? or You will give away half of your wealth during your lifetime or upon your death. Right. At least half. At least half. At least half. There's Warren Buffett. There's Bill Gates. Yeah, it's like kind of a, I think a Zuckerberg is like kind of a bit of a who's who. Of, right. Of Why'd you do that? We were never expecting to accumulate so much wealth. Of course, I like to joke that if I wanted to make a lot of money, I would not have started Air Bed and Breakfast because <laughs> um, that did not seem like the way to make a lot of money. And this thing just kind of happened. We weren't totally prepared for it. But it was a couple years ago. I'm in my early 30s. We had accumulated more wealth than we ever could imagine. And we thought, you know, we could wait a long time to figure out what to do. But I started calling up people. I remember having a conversation with Warren Buffett. And I asked, why did you join the Giving Pledge? Should I be thinking about this now or not? Can, can you just stop for a second? Yeah. When you get to a certain level, is it like, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Warren Buffett now? <laughs> you do eventually meet all these people. so At some point, you ascend to the circuit. I guess you do. I'm pretty shameless, though. So it helps to be <laughs> shameless like me, where other people have too much self-respect to like interrupt a conversation. Maybe I didn't. I just like, hey, Mr. Buffett. Um, but I, I met him at a conference. There's this conference every year in Sun Valley that a lot of people go right. to. So I met him there. I developed a relationship. I mean, it's so surreal. Like I have the good fortune of saying that I talked to him, and he acted like a bit of a mentor to me. And then Zuckerberg is someone else that helped me a lot. People like to help what they see as maybe the next generation of people right. coming up. And so I called up Warren Buffett. I mean, the way you do it, just you email his assistant and say, hey, can I talk to Warren Buffett? And give like, great. And then so a call gets set up. So I called Warren Buffett. He basically said, you can't take the money with you when you die. So you have to think through what do you do with the money? And ultimately, you have to think about how the money gets redistributed to society. And do you want to control how the money gets redistributed to society or not? And so the giving pledge just means that you're committing to redistributing your wealth back to society. And I think it's something that is a great culture to do. So the question is, if you believe in that principle, and I believed in that principle, I thought, I don't have a right to be here. I, was, I have the privilege of being here based on the world allowing me to exist. And, and I talked to my family about it, and they were supportive, obviously. And then the question is, well, when do you do it? Should I wait? years or not. I decided that it would probably be a good thing to do it sooner than later because maybe it would I could lead by example for the next generation. And that's what Warren told me. He said the sooner you do it, 
the sooner you join the Giving Pledge, the more the next generation of peaceful wealth will be inspired to also follow your lead. And one of the greatest changes that we can make in the world is just being a role model. If you want the world to be a certain way, you live your life that way. And maybe only your family will follow you or your friends will follow you. And if you get very successful, more people will follow you. And that was the basic principle. And so that's why we did it. And I've also noticed you, you kind of lean into a lot of the political issues that come yeah. up. Shithole uh, comments you kind of said. Yeah. Started advertising yeah. like Airbnb. We had with- 3 million people go to these countries. They seem to like it. And then somebody, somebody said some absurd comment on Twitter like, well, they go there because they can't afford it. And I said, that's absurd. Most of our travel is vacation travel. People chose to fly to vacation here. And the reviews and the satisfaction is as high in these destinations than any other country in the world. It actually seems to work out quite well. But the bigger point is there's a next generation of leaders that are and maybe should be getting more involved in the community and issues. Business isn't just business as usual any longer. I think that the public is expecting more of institutions. They're expecting more of companies. Companies are becoming larger than they've ever been. We have a huge amount of responsibility and we have a huge microphone. How we think about our policies and what we promote has a profound impact on how the world lives and we have to have real responsibility. And it's interesting to watch, having been away for 15 years and then coming back, there's so much wealth that is accumulated, especially in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. The kind of slow, maybe stuttering awakening of, as you say, the current class or the new class coming up of like, okay, well, actually, we have a pulpit here. We should, and we have a responsibility. We have to actually have to use it. I think the really big trend in a lot of the things we talked about today is the sense of a greater responsibility. We have a responsibility to manage our platforms better. Think about the externalities. Think about what we do for wealth. Think about the cities we live in. Think about the kind of role models you want to become and by the way like when i came to the valley 10 years ago not i I didn't know i don't remember anyone telling me any of this stuff they said make something people love so you just make something people love grow as fast as you can there were very basic principles i think that was the underdog mentality so what happens when you do exist and you're massive and you're really large suddenly the responsibility changes and i think that's what i think the whole industry is grappling with taxes so in the UK, for example, I think you paid something like less than a million dollars in tax and used, I think, the double Irish situation routing your revenues through, through Ireland to avoid tax. I know that you're not breaking any rules, but we've talked a lot about community responsibility. I mean, how does that square? Well, the first thing I would say is this. Corporate taxes are taxes on profits. We just got profitable, but regardless of our tax... When did you get profitable? Last year. So okay. this past fiscal year, we just became profitable. The tax on our profits would have probably been a pretty small number, regardless of our tax arrangement. That being said, the real needle mover for us in taxes is the tax that we facilitate for our host. Our hosts have paid, I believe, $530 million in tax. And this is tax that we've actually collected and remitted. So we've collected Globally or... Globally. Right. That would be in the uh, UK, of course, tens of millions, maybe more than tens of millions, but certainly tens of millions of dollars. So we think a couple things. Number one, we have this really benevolent economic model where the vast majority of economics are going to people. We elected to collect remit hotel tax. In most cities, the law isn't that we have to collect remit hotel tax. It's that the hosts have to pay it, and the hosts can choose to pay it or not to, but we intervened. We thought it would legitimize our business, would be the right thing to do. And so we kind of faced this with hotel taxes like three, four years ago, and that was the primary issue. With the global tax, we're 
of course, complying with laws. But, you know, I think these are things that are good for us to reevaluate and look at. And we're open minded about what the right thing to do is. I think a lot of really big tech companies that set precedents are kind of reevaluating. Yeah, because Facebook just said, OK, we're actually going to start just paying. Yeah. We're going to stop the jiggery pokery. We're just going to pay taxes where we operate. Yeah. So for us, this wasn't as prime of an issue because, again, the economics were hundreds of millions of dollars for hotel tax. To be profitable, you have to be a huge company, massively profitable for these profits to matter, like a Facebook or an Apple. This is an issue that I want to kind of revisit, of course, and continually look at. We just kind of prioritize the host right. economics. And that, my attention has been really there because that's where most of the money is. And are you worried about this apparently quite concerted effort by the hotel industry to kind of launch a campaign to get new anti-home sharing, anti-Airbnb laws, donating to friendly senators, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I think you guys recently hired some lobbyists in D.C. to kind yeah, of yeah. get your side across. Well, we're like the, the David in, in this. We may be larger than any one company, but a, relative to an industry, we're very, very small. What I would say is when we first started Airbnb, we thought this could become a really big idea or maybe the hotel industry will kill it. And we didn't know. And this was an idea we thought many years ago. Mostly we were ignored by the industry. There weren't many issues for a very long period of time. But there was a debate a long time ago. Will Airbnb exist in the future? And if you had asked me in 2008, 2009, 2010, I certainly could not have told you with certainty if Airbnb will exist in the future. The idea of Airbnb, I couldn't even tell if that existed. I think it's pretty clear you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I think that guests want this. Hundreds of millions of guests have voted and said they've wanted this. I think millions of hosts want this, and those hosts are local voters. If you stay in a hotel, not all the money in a hotel goes to that city. 97% of the price you see goes to the host in that local community. What I guess I'm Your getting Your fee at, is 3%. Three uh, percent on the host. We add a guest fee on top of it. But the price you see on Airbnb, when you search, the host gets 97% of their listing price. Ultimately, I think the people always win. And the people will decide whether Airbnb exists or Airbnb doesn't. Doesn't, And so long as we're a force for good in the world, there can be perpetual campaigns. There are. But it's going to be ultimately up to the people, including the people listening, to decide if this should exist in their communities or not. I take you don't buy this idea that they said it's not fair. You guys don't pay the same taxes and stuff we that we do. We do. We actually <laughs> pay what's called a hotel occupancy tax. It's the exact same rate as them. So that was something that was there was a complaint about. And in fact, we do pay hotel occupancy taxes. We don't also, by the way, hotel occupancy taxes are meant to pay for things like the tourism bureaus. The tourism bureaus are meant to promote you. Not every tourism bureau equally promotes Airbnb to hotels, even though our hotel tax funds a hotel tourism bureaus more than any one hotel because of our size. So I think that like there's many benefits we don't get. It's fine. But um, we think the playing field is level. And if it's not level, of course, always look at that. Right. Well, look, I know you've been uh, very generous with your time. I look forward to flying on Air Airbnb. <laughs> B&B Air. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is our show. Thank you to you for listening and to Brian as well for taking the time and walking us through his rather grand vision of the future. Um, if he does launch an airline i hope it's better than ryanair or southwest or any of those other guys um we shall see it's a obviously a very tall order um if you are interested in hearing more um in the 
newspaper this weekend, I wrote a profile of Brian, so you can check that out, and lots of other stuff going on around uh, in the in the Valley uh, that I've written about this weekend. So do go to the paper, uh, the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, or on email at Danny dot Fortson, F-O-R-T-S-O-N at Sunday hyphen times dot co dot UK if you have any suggestions, gripes, complaints, or garlands. If they're complaints, please be gentle. Till next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information.